Ephesians chapter number 6. As we continue in our worship services, this is the time where we focus on a deeper, more fuller meditation upon the things of God from His Word. We are looking at a metaphor. Paul is describing the military outfit, the armor of a Roman soldier, and is being used to illustrate the Christian soldier's armor. And so we are exhorted with a sense of urgency to put this armor on, put every piece on, as the hymn writer said with prayer, put every piece of the armor on. And he speaks of putting on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and putting on the shoes, the boots, the soldier's boots, the gospel of peace. And then we are to take up. We are to take our shield of faith and take our helmet of salvation and to take the sword as we go into our spiritual conflicts that we surely will encounter every day. Paul's choice of a soldier's armor to describe spiritual things stresses the importance of our knowledge and understanding of these particular qualities that he is using to illustrate through armor. And because this metaphor is teaching us about a soldier's life and his fighting against an enemy, we also recognize the importance of training and developing skills in our use of our armor against our foe, particularly the devil. The devil who uses anything he can, anyone he can, to weaken our faith and our devotion to God. The Christian life is meant to grow, to get stronger, even as we war against the world and all of its system, its ways. We war against the flesh with its lusts and pride. We war against the devil, the general who rules the darkness we live in. We are to get stronger through these battles, not weaker. That's the design and plan. And God has made it possible with this uniform that it would be so. That we do not have to be defeated. We do not have to be overcome, but rather as you go to the book of Revelation of Christ, the last thing said seven times to the churches, he that overcomes, it is God's design that his church is an overcomer. Regardless of the things that we face around us or in us, it doesn't matter. We can be Overcomers. The devil is the first and great shapeshifter who knows our weaknesses and vulnerabilities better than we do. And he knows how to best deceive 
and allure us into wrong thinking and behavior. We must have our eyes wide open all the time because he's at work all the time. No trained Roman soldier would rush off to war without his armor on. Following the apostles' logic here, it would be utter foolishness for a Christian to face our enemy without our armor on. And many Christians are ineffective in their battles against the enemy. Many accept defeat as a way of life. Some even give up trying for a season. The purpose of this whole block of information that we have here in chapter 6 on the armor of God is given to us so that we can fight effectively and defeat our spiritual enemy. We can protect our soul, our church, our families against his attacks. In fact, we can even drive the enemy out of our mind and affections where he has built strongholds over us. The one weapon given to us in our armor is the spiritual sword that we are considering in verse number 17, the second half of the verse, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And we reminded ourselves that it is the same sword used by Jesus Christ who defeated the devil in every battle. This sword that he used is endued with the same power of God now as it was then. It hasn't changed in its power. This sword that is issued to us as a part of our armor is clearly declared is the word. That's the sword, is the word. We are to take God's word and use these words. And we noted here the, the Greek word is not logos, as often is the case, but rather rima, and it refers to more specific words that have been given. And we are to take God's words and use them as a spiritual sword. And Paul was instructing, remember this, Paul was instructing the church at Ephesus to take the words written to them and weaponize them so they can use these words to improve their relationships. They are to use the words and, and I pray that these are not things in the rear view mirror of your spiritual life. The things that we studied about relationships ought to be front and center all the time. You can take your whole Christian life, everything said to the church and to the believer, and you can put it into these five categories. This is important. And the... Spirit of God gave the Apostle Paul these words about body life. You should never forget these words. You ought to reflect on these words. You ought to meditate on these words. These words ought to be shaping the way you think about body life. 
That's why they're given to us. You've heard others say it's some of these. I mean, he gave words about how we as a church are to be light in a dark world. He gave words about what that looks like and how we're to carry that out. He gave us words about marriage relationship. He spoke to the wife. He spoke to the husband. These are not things we studied two years ago and we forget today. He gave us words about raising children. About being effective, godly parents. He gave us words about our working relationships between employers and employees. So how do we use these words as a sword to defeat our enemy who is seeking to damage and even destroy these relationships, which he is? The only way that we can weaponize these words, we've said it and I'm going to say it until we're done with Ephesians. We have to be people with ears who hear. We have to hear. The word. James says it a little more abruptly. He says, sit down, shut up, and listen. Quit talking, quit arguing with the word. Submit yourself to its authority over you. And you'll be amazed what the word can do in you. Just stop arguing with the word. But you have to have ears to hear. And you have to submit to that word in your life. As you heard meekness emphasized in Sunday school. We appreciated CW's presentation of blessed are the meek. You have to submit, James says, with in a spirit of meekness to the authority of God's word over you. Or it will not profit you. It won't take root in you. It won't bear fruit in your life. And it doesn't matter how foreign the word that you hear is to your life. It has the ability to be engrafted into your life and produce fruit. But you must hear, you must submit. And oh, by the way, you must obey. You must be a doer of the things you hear or you're just deceiving yourself. So that's how we weaponize. We take the words of God that have been given to us. We weaponize them as a sword to fight against those things that seek to derail our spiritual life or attack our families, our church, whatever it would be. We don't give Satan that room. So God's word becomes a sword. What an amazing thing, a sword that we take up in our hand. He says, take up the sword. Pick it up and wield it. Use it as a weapon against your enemy. This is how we correct our life. All of our lives need to be adjusted, do they not? Does anyone here find themselves to be fully perfect in their relationship with God? I don't think so. No matter how many gains we make throughout the years of our life, I still stand appalled at the weaknesses that exist in my own soul. 
This is how we correct our life. This is how we change and become less earthly-minded and more godly-minded. This is how we walk worthy of our calling. We take up the word of God as a sword. We take his words. We apply them to our own life. So verse 17, this latter half is very clear. The Christian soldier's sword is the word or the words of God weaponized by our hearing, submitting, and obeying. The sword and word. When, when you hear this, these phrases here, you, you, you can see how they're kind of, there's, there's an interesting deductive kind of logic going on here with Paul in a formula of sorts. He says, and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. Somehow these are all tied together here. And so we weaponize God's words in order to fight using a sword effectively against our enemy. The spirit of God speaking to us through the inspired words of the apostle Paul wants us to make the connection between the spirit and the words, and always keep this truth before us. The sword of the Spirit, that is, our weapon, is from the Spirit. And the weapon is the words of God. That's what's being communicated. The only weapon that the Spirit uses is the word of God. This isn't something that we have the power to create or make happen in our own life. The Spirit of God has provided for us the Word of God to be a powerful weapon. It is a weapon when we, in faith, hear the words of God speaking to us. It becomes a weapon. It is a weapon when we, in meekness, receive God's Word and submit to them. It is a weapon when we obey the words and continue to obey until we gain the victory, it becomes a weapon. There is no weapon to be compared to this sword. There is no human philosophy or ideas that even can come close to the word of God. It is the only weapon. There is no weapon in the devil's arsenal that can match this weapon. Nothing. You might think he's powerful. He cannot stand up against the power of the word of God as a sword in our hand. Jesus illustrated that in his own temptation. Jesus taught us that the spirit is the spirit of truth. That is, he only speaks the truth. <laughs> Thy truth. The word is the truth, as Jesus said. He only speaks the truth. He only responds to the truth. He is given to God's children to be our comforter, and he only comforts with the truth. He and the word of God are entwined together and can never in our mind ever be separated. The spirit of truth, unlike the devil, doesn't change to accommodate human needs or weaknesses. 
Because only God's truth can truly heal. Only God's words can truly comfort. Only God's truth can truly inspire change. God's truth communicated to us through his word, we know is eternal, absolute, objective, and unchanging. And the effectual power of God's word is somehow this mystery released when the Spirit of God broods over the Word. The Spirit only has the power to make the Word of God a sword that we can take up as a weapon against the devil and all of his evil forces. The emphasis or point I'm stressing right now and I'm moving through it this morning, is this. The Spirit of God will not work without the Word of God spoken. It doesn't work without it. Nor does the Word of God work with power without the Spirit's work. You can throw out the Word of God all day, but if the Spirit is not brooding on that Word, there is no power in that Word. Paul, and we're sort of going to take a, a little bit of an overview look here that I think is important over the next two weeks. Paul develops his doctrine of the Spirit in chapters 1 through 3 and then applies the ministry of that doctrine of the Spirit in chapters 4 through 6. Now, Paul doesn't cover every facet of the person work of the Spirit. To do that, we would need to study all that is taught throughout all of the Word of God concerning the Spirit. That's not our goal. But what Paul does is he takes it and he gathers up the main ideas as it relates to the issues that this church needed. They needed clarity on the doctrine of salvation. And the Spirit plays an important integral role into this work of the word of God concerning salvation. He is uh, connected to it and vitally. So what he said to this church about the spirit was important for their knowledge and understanding of the doctrine of their salvation. And that information that he gave would be important then to their application of the truth to their life, enabling them to walk worthy of the Lord. So all that Paul teaches about the Spirit, he will then link together in every instant the Spirit and the Word of God. They function in Paul's mind as it is in the mind of God himself. They are one and never work independently. I believe what the prophet said in Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 11. Whenever God sends out his word on a mission to accomplish a specific thing, we know that God's spirit is there and will brood over the soul that his word was sent to and God's word will accomplish its purpose. It will not return to him void. But some have a wrong notion about that. All they got to do is say the word of God and they believe that God's word's never going to come back void. Well, do you know how many sermons have 
fallen on deaf ears and never went anywhere through 2,000 years. 4,000 years when the prophets were preaching, how many words of the prophets fell on deaf ears and it went nowhere? Unless the Spirit of God is brooding, there is no eternal work going to take place in that soul. We know that many churches attempt to manipulate the word by by adding to it, by twisting it, by diminishing it. And they attempt to imitate the spirit by using human emotions or whatever. Time proves that the word was not sent by God, nor was the spirit willing to work in that environment. Great Light Baptist Church, like many other churches, we have confidence in the Word of God and the Spirit of God. We don't need to manipulate it or twist it to achieve something. We have confidence that the Word and the Spirit is going to work in you, who are truly, who have hearing ears. And are receiving the word even now with a meek disposition. And are not wrestling against the truth and are committed to walking worthy. The spirit of God is going to work in you. We believe that. The ministry of the word in this church is very simple. We teach and preach God's word. And we trust in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And where we notice he's not working, we pray that God would intervene in that life because their ears are closed. They are not submitting to the Lordship. And Paul says in that case, you pray that God would give them repentance because unless he gives them repentance, they will not be recovered. And so we recognize when those things are going on, there's a condition that exists. And so we pray to that end. So anyway, Paul makes 12 statements about the Spirit in this letter. Six of them are in the first half and six of them are in the second half, neatly divided for us. The Spirit of God is inspiring Paul to say these things about himself. He wants us to know these things about his own person and work and ministry. And we believe that these six doctrinal references are definitely important to our understanding of the six that are found in the application section. I'll attempt to be clear and brief. That's always a challenge, but that's my goal. I want to set the first doctrinal statements before you this morning. And the first one, the first time, and and we're noticing as we study it, not only are we discovering things about the Spirit of God himself, but we're recognizing that he only functions in conjunction with the Word of God. Go back to chapter 1. I'll read verse 13 and 14, and then we're going to put it within its broader context. But he says, 
in whom also you trusted. He just spoke of Christ at the end of verse 12. You put your faith in. After that, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed, you were then sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest, the down payment that guarantees you will receive the inheritance. And it will stand to hold that promise until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Chapter 1. One of the great benefits of teaching four years now the book of Ephesians in my teaching ministry in Haiti, our academy, is they all, every class has to take Ephesians for a whole year. I get to go over and over and over and over this, and I'm so thrilled because I would have a temptation to come to chapter 6 at the end of the chapter and say, let's start over because it's so rich. And we probably only received a little part of it, all of us, myself included. So to go over and over and over, it has just been a rewarding thing for me. In chapter 1, we have the scope and sequence of God's salvation plan set before us in verses 3 through 14. Salvation is revealed as Trinitarian in nature, as you heard Steve mention. What a phenomenal thing, because here we find the Trinity engaged in my salvation. Every member of the Godhead engaged in my salvation. Well, that's something we need to ponder and think about. Verses 3 through 6, he talks about the Father's part. Many things said there. He's choosing and he's decreeing the outcome of his people right from the beginning. In verses 7 through 12, he talks about the son's part. Who executed the redemptive plan. And secured our eternal inheritance, the son. And in verses 13 through 14, he speaks of the spirit applying the salvation plan to the elect. But did you notice here? That you heard, you trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. The Spirit does not regenerate a soul without the word. The brooding Spirit uses the living word to bring life. And he did it from the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. And for every soul of the new creation, he is doing the same thing. It is the word and the spirit that brings life. Sometimes we know the spoken word can lie dormant in a soul, waiting for the appointed time when, when, when God will say, let there be light or Lazarus come forth. That can happen. But generally they work. Together, simultaneously, where the word goes out and the spirit brooding over that life takes that word, births that life, 
raises it from death to life, and now they can hear and see. And to that life, he grants faith so that when they hear, they can believe. God does all of that for his people. And it is the spirit that brings that to pass when the word is spoken. We must always think of these two, spirit and word, as one. This is a biblical truth that the church must know and understand and never deviate from. God works his eternal plan through the word and the spirit. The second reference shows up in chapter 1 and verse number 17. And the context here is Paul's intercessory prayer. He interrupts his teaching and he pauses. You remember? He knows the things he's teaching are deep things of God, not easily grasped. And so he pauses. He knows the hearers need divine assistance to comprehend what he's teaching them. And so he goes to the Father and he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, in verse 17, the Father of glory, that he may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And we know that him here is in reference to the work that the Father has done for us through Christ. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance is in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So the appeal here to Paul of Paul to, to God his father is that those who are sitting and listening as this epistle, this letter is read to them is that God would be gracious and grant a greater measure of his spirit upon them so that they might understand the truths that are being taught to them. The knowledge of God's work is much deeper than what the Ephesian believers knew and understood at that time. And so Paul is praying for more of the Spirit's work so they can know more of what God has done for them. And they need the Spirit to open up their minds, to receive not only knowledge, but a deeper understanding of the knowledge they are receiving. God's inspired words are given to them. But unless the Spirit gives to them that ability to understand those words, Paul knew. It's going to go in one ear and out the other. He understood the need of the Spirit to brood upon these words, cause them to be clarified, understood. And so he prays, knowing it's the will of our Father to know what our Father has done for us through his Son. So he prays, and he asks the Father to give a greater light which comes from the Spirit. This is why we pray for the success of God's word in our services, do we not? 
We pray to that end. Because we are humbly acknowledging that no matter how how good anyone might be in standing in the pulpit and preaching God's word, it really doesn't matter if the Spirit of God is not working in that body and in those souls. And so we pray for the success of God's word in the lives of those who are hearing it. Word and Spirit. Another one is found in chapter 2, verse 18. For through Christ, through him, we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. In verse 12 of chapter 3, he says a similar thing. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence by faith of him. Of what Christ has done for us. So how is it to be understood here? How is Paul using the Spirit here? For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. The word access that is used here, this particular Greek word, is stressing how. How we approach God. It's not a verb. It's not talking about the activity of coming into God's presence. But rather, the identifying of what it is and how it was accomplished. What is that? Access. How is it I have access? How is that possible? Who made it possible? So the focus is not on me going into it, but the contemplation of the fact that it's possible. I have access. We come into the presence of God considering, contemplating the way. And to have our minds fixed on how the way to God, our Father, has been provided. We come with awareness of the finished work, as even chapter 3, verse 12 indicates. We come with awareness of the finished work. We, we come knowing the way is paved in the blood of Christ himself. We stand in amazement. We are pondering the way, the fact that we have access. This is how the Spirit aids us. In our coming, we are focused on the truth, those words that describe the way into the presence of God our Father, which he has just been articulating in chapter 2 before he gets to this. And so, what does this mean? It means the Spirit aids us by reminding us of the truth concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Spirit just doesn't kind of gather and take you up in this grand moment of ecstasy into the presence of the Father. The Spirit is helping us to contemplate how it is that you can come to Him. Remember what has been done for you. 
This is his job, exalting Christ before you. That you would come with confidence, not because of yourself, because of him, Christ, and what he did for you. This is the Spirit calling us to the contemplation of the way. The fact that we have access unto God. And of course that can't be done without the contemplation of the truth. If you ignore the truth and, and try to just crash into the, into the room of the Almighty God and you haven't contemplated the way, you're probably going to find yourself realizing, wait a minute, I've been floundering around here for a while. I'm really not in the throne room at all. And so there needs to be the contemplation. That's the access that we have. Is a glorious thing. But that's contingent, of course, upon the reality of God's word. Spirit and word. He's drawing our attention to the way and all that was done to get us there. And again in chapter 2, toward the end of this chapter... Paul is writing about the household of God, that we've all become Jew and Gentile, fellow citizens with the saints. God has broken down the middle wall of partition. It doesn't exist anymore. And together, in verse 20, we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone of the foundation and apostles and prophets. Here we are immediately reminded as we dealt with this thoroughly when we went through it. This is about the writings and the teachings of the New Testament that have been given to us, apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself, our Christology, is what causes that whole structure to be squared. That's the foundation of the church in whom all the building then is fitly framed together and it's growing unto a holy temple in the Lord in whom also you are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. And there he shows up again in Paul's theology and his pneumatology, I guess is the right word, the study of the Spirit in the Word. He's here again. And it, it, I, we all stand amazed when we contemplate this right at the beginning of the call of our worship. We, we stand amazed at what is happening. The Spirit performs a spiritual miracle of sorts. He brings the presence of God into our midst. It's as if Zion has come down to us. By the very presence of the Spirit of God dwelling among us. And together we worship through praises, many things to praise God for, many things to celebrate, many thanksgivings need to be offered. And He, the Spirit, enables us to worship through the Word. Without the foundation of the Word of God that has been given to us by the apostles and prophets, there is no edifice, there is no temple, there is no house of God. He has 
brought that to pass through his work of inspiration. Paul said in 1 Timothy 3.15 that, that the church is the ground and pillar of the truth. It is the church who holds this truth up. And that cannot be achieved apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. This is the fifth reference that Paul makes to the Spirit. He simply says, which in other times, ages, were not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What is he talking about here? Well, in the context, he's referring to the fact that Gentiles have been brought into the relationship to God that once only belonged to the children of ancient Israel or later the Jews. But God has hidden that for centuries and millennium, he says. It has been hidden. In verse 3, he talks about that. The revelation has been made known unto me, Paul, in a very particular way. God has chosen me to reveal these things, as I wrote to you in a few words. Wherefore, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed. The apocalypse. The cover's thrown off. It's been hidden, but not any longer. The cover's off. It is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The truth concerning these things has been revealed by the Spirit. What is that truth, Paul? That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of the promises that are in Christ by the gospel. Amazing. But who has revealed these things? Paul said, the one who has made known these things is the Spirit. The Spirit of God has revealed Christ in a far more fuller way under the new covenant than was revealed in the old covenant. And he's revealed in his plan that God has hidden did not make fully known. We see it in types and pictures. We hear of it in our studies of the prophets. But it was not really clear until Christ came. What was not made known to them is now revealed unto us by the Spirit. So no truth comes. No truth has been compiled and structured Apart from the Spirit of God. And finally, one last one is in chapter 3, verse 16. Paul has entered into his second intercessory prayer now. And he is praying to the Father. I bow my knees unto the Father, he said in verse 14. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. 
And here again, he is, he is still moving his doctrinal thoughts forward, and he is praying that the Spirit of God would enable them to understand the things that he's teaching them. Strengthened with might by the Spirit in the inner man. There has to be the, the brooding of the Spirit over the soul to grasp the things of God. You can understand information. You, you can even articulate a lot of theology. But how that theology impacts your life and changes and brings fruit out of your life, that is different. That requires the Spirit of God brooding over the Word of God in your life, or it will not happen. And so he's crying again unto the Father to do this. To be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. The things that you have received, they may be taken in by you in faith, believing what has been taught to you about Christ that he has been teaching and instructing them on, so that you would become rooted and grounded in that love and may be able to comprehend with all saints and to know and understand the love of Christ that passeth all knowledge. You cannot grasp the glory of these things without the Spirit. So he prays that the Father would give the Spirit to make these things real to them. Otherwise, it's just information bouncing around nowhere like a pinball in their brain. But where the Spirit broods, there is life. Life is brought forth. So, two minutes to summarize it all. Are you ready? The first reference, the new birth requires the word and spirit. This is having a correct pneumatology. The second reference, we cannot grow and develop without this word and spirit. Who feeds us first with milk and then meat. As he prays in that intercessory prayer. This is correct pneumatology. In Ephesians 2.18. Our knowledge and understanding of the access that we have to the Father. Because of the all-sufficient work of Jesus Christ. Will impact how we come to the throne. He does this. He draws our attention to that work of our Redeemer. This is correct pneumatology. In Ephesians 2, he talks about how we can take this simple little gathering of believers that just looks normal to us, right? And according to the word of God, the spirit of God turns this into a temple for the worship of God. That's correct pneumatology. Understanding the spirit. From the word of God. And only the spirit can reveal the depths of God's work. That are contained in his son. Only the spirit can ever uncover the mystery. Of God's eternal plan concerning his people. That's a work of the spirit. That's correct pneumatology.
And so as we think these things through in the next session, we will see how these truths impact our application to our own life. We just didn't show up in chapter 6, verse 17, about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. There's a lot of groundwork that Paul has been putting down and establishing so that when we get there, oh yeah, it makes sense. And so it's important that you gather up this information as you try to deal with the reality of the sword of the living eternal spirit is the word of God. He is always connected to the word. And what a glorious thing it is to know that. And we have it in our hand. We can turn it into a weapon to deal with our own sin, to uproot things that have found lodging far too long in our life. This is it. It has the same power. Father, thank you for the moments we can pause and reflect upon your word. I pray that these truths would abide and remain. I pray that they would bring fruit in your people. I ask in Christ's name. Amen.